The Cell Phone Junkie Podcast, episode 568 for April 30th, 2017. The EU abolishes roaming charges, AT&T ruins the future of 5G, and T-Mobile continues to ratchet up the pressure. My name is Mickey Papillon. And I'm Joey Kappas. Brought to you each week by the Cell Phone Junkie podcast application, available now for Android, iOS, and Windows Phone 8 for $1.99. Well, first up this week, uh, the iPad Pro. Yes, not new at all, but something new to me. And for me, more than just a toy, this iPad is the iPad that is my primary work computer. So we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But first up, uh, I want to talk just a little bit about what I like and don't like about it. So obviously, the screen size is truly amazing if you're using this as um, you know a device that you're using for long periods of time. Obviously, where it's feasible to use is the other point of this, and we'll get into more of that. Uh, sling player on it is the best. It's like having uh, your own little TV that you can take around with you, and at almost 13 inches, it's fantastic. The speakers on it, definitely an upgrade, uh, but still definitely iPad speakers. Low-end uh, you know, bass response is really not there, but ultimately, it is nice to hear stereo coming out of an iPad. Right. I mean, for me, that's the feature that I'm most interested in uh, on both sides of the iPad Pro is that four speaker rotation system, whereas, uh, you know, I occasionally use my phone now for Netflix. And, and the, the reason I do it is because it has the stereo sound on it, because it has uh, audio coming out of the earpiece and the, the bottom and the, the, low, the, the volume is lower coming out of the earpiece to kind of match it because of the directionality of the speakers. And it, 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 it's a perfect balance. And I can, you know, e- e- hear the stereo on it. And I really like that. So, uh, you know, someday here when I finally get a, a newer iPad, I, I I just can't wait to get the better sound. So I'm, you know, I'm somebody who watches not a whole lot of video on the iPad. Usually when I have something on there, I'm airplaying it to a TV. But, um, you know, certainly for, you know, YouTube videos and I did some kind of some of those test you know videos that are out there for stereo and it, it, it does work, uh, does work and it works pretty well. Yeah, and uh, for me, the the, the 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 big reason I use the iPad a lot is Netflix, and I really, really like Netflix on the iPad. And and uh, before I got my very first iPad back, uh, the iPad Two, uh, the, the, you know, the thing that was going through my mind is like. I would love to have that thing for Netflix. And, uh, you know, I, you know, to this day, that's my, one of my kind of primary usages of, uh, the iPad. And, uh, I, I can't wait to get better speakers on it. So the one thing I will say for phone calls, which is something I do quite a bit on the iPad, it does not, uh, play the audio out of all of the speakers. It just plays them out, out of the bottom speakers, uh, for good reason. Uh, the microphone on the iPad is up at the top, so they keep that up there and they turn the speakers off on there, I'm guessing, for uh, ensuring that you don't. Uh, there, there's no issues with the sound of the phone call. But either way, so the speakers are definitely a positive. Um, the speed of this thing um, is truly impressive. It is super fast. Also, it is very stable. Um, there is definitely something with having uh, to having the four gigs of RAM in it. Um, this totally changes the iPad, in my opinion, as you're kind of working with it and uh, you know going through numbers of applications, different applications, switching back and forth. If you've got a bunch of web pages that are loaded in Safari, um, and uh, you know you're doing the side by side, etc. So it, there's there, there's something to this. Um, stuff seems to stay in memory for days, really, versus the hours uh, that I found with the old iPad. And, and just generally it works really well. There's two uh, big things that I've noticed with it. So uh, on Evernote, Evernote is lightning fast. It was uh, definitely an issue with my my old iPad, um, and it's just fantastic 
the experience with Evernote is fantastic on here. Also, uh, mail uh, functions quite well. It's not laggy. It's not slow. It's not you know buggy. I, I had experienced a lot of bugs with the iPad and mail. And so again, I think it's there's something to there's something to the more memory that this thing has that's really very useful for the operating system. Well, it's the upgraded processor and the upgraded RAM. It's the two things combined. I mean, that's why you want uh, you know the heavier due to your device, and that's what's uh, this provides you. And that, you know, I think the iPad Air two is great, and it's only a few. It, it's you know now a few years old, but it's really only one generation behind so that's what's kind of strange about it is you know you're making a big leap for one uh one device and that's uh uh kind of it, it did baffle me that the ipad pro 9.7 only had the two gigs of ram that matches the ipad air 2s and that's a big uh drawback and that's one of the the big reasons why i haven't jumped on one yet yeah i would i would absolutely agree with that i mean to me this is it's a massive increase um in in performance of the device itself um finally not having to charge the keyboard um i did get the apple keyboard uh for this thing and so um it is nice not to have to charge that so uh kind of to to sum up what i like about it so great screen uh great speakers it's very fast and uh if you're using it in one spot so now on to the what i don't like about it and and some of these are are pretty big ones so In my opinion, it is too big to be truly portable. My old iPad was with me all the time. This one really doesn't get a lot of action outside of work hours unless I'm doing work. Uh, I feel uh, like I'm only taking it, you know, in places that I'm going to actually be working and and pulling up and doing, you know, very heavy, intensive work stuff on it. Um, It's not coming with me room to room like my old iPad did. It's just it's bulky. It's heavy. Um, It just feels much more cumbersome. Um, you know, I, I was putting together kind of some thoughts on the iPad itself, and, and that's how, how I a lot of times do these reviews of these things when I'm trying to get ready to talk about them, sitting on the, you know, the couch or whatever, and I'm just kind of typing in notes into Evernote. And I did all of these notes on the iPhone as I was thinking about the iPad that was sitting upstairs in the briefcase. And, and that, that's kind of the point of this is that it's, it just doesn't feel portable enough for me to even go up and grab it because of, of, of just how big it is. Is part of that because of the keyboard you have attached to it? Is is that because that's adding bulk and weight to it? I don't think so. I mean, the the keyboard I had before um, was a Kensington folio style thing, and it wasn't it wasn't anything svelte. Um, and I I brought that thing with me everywhere. I mean, it was you know from the minute I got up, I would pull it off the charger, and that was what I had with me as I was drinking coffee. Um, if I would get, you know, text messages or whatever throughout, you know, the morning and, and stuff before I was getting ready. I mean, it was almost like the, I didn't even touch the phone until I was, you know, literally ready to walk out the door and the iPad did every single thing other than that. And now it's the, it, it's almost like it just feels like a laptop and it's like, well, you're not going to bring the laptop with you down to, you know, grab a cup of coffee in many cases. I mean, you're just like grab whatever the easy thing is. And a lot of, for a lot of people, that's the phone, you know, to check, you know, triage email and stuff like that. And I, I just haven't been doing it this week i don't know why just maybe because i think it's because of the size um but uh anyway it, this would never have happened with the air it never did happen with the air so that's why i'm thinking it has to do with the size of it so and it's it's almost like a conscious slash you know subconscious thing i'm just not thinking about it but um anyway uh it, the weight itself it, it's it's much heavier it comes with the territory right i mean you're talking about something that is you know 13 inches on the diagonal versus uh, 10 so it's it you know a lot more glass a lot more metal etc so um, the smart keyboard um, is nice in that you don't have to charge it, uh, but definitely is a downgrade. Um, it's not backlit. 
it's missing a row of keys at the top. Um, so you can't do things like get back to the home screen, turn off the power to the screen, change the tracks, adjust the volume. You're touching the screen itself and the, the actual physical buttons on the iPad a lot more. It's like Apple decided, let's see, what, what, what is the thing we can provide for a keyboard uh, for our iPad? Oh, here we go. Let's not include any standard feature that every single keyboard has now had for many years on it. Uh, and of course, iOS fully supports with Bluetooth keyboards, but let's leave that stuff off. Uh, even though we have a de- dedicated dock connector and we can use the power off the off the uh, the iPad itself. Perfect idea. Yeah, and it, it, it's a it's really kind of a, a frustrating experience if you've used keyboards that have all these function keys. And I just I, I don't understand why they decided to to cut out so much of this other than perhaps they couldn't they wanted to have the bigger keys and they couldn't get an extra row in here well come on they, they, they could have made them little tiny things it, it would be easy right i mean it, it 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 doesn't make any sense i mean the, the the few times i do use a bluetooth keyboard with my ipad i use those function keys constantly yeah and i guess the the only saving grace is that you know there are multi finger or multi point gestures uh multi-touch gestures i guess they call them on the screen itself so you can do things like you know get back to the home screen quickly but it's it, it's so much easier if you don't have to lift your fingers off the keyboard and and whatnot so um, the other part of it is the keyboard is actually it's I don't love using it. Um, it is maybe something that I will get used to over time. But uh, the, the the switches underneath these keys, because, of course, it's just a very thin piece of uh, fabric that is covering these keys. Um, the responsiveness is just not what I would I prefer in a keyboard. And so I, I spent so much time. I spend so much time that is on the iPad. Again, it's it is my primary computer that this is it, it's very um, it, it's very difficult um, to get used to something different, especially when it doesn't feel the same. And so I, this is going to probably take some time because, um, again, it's only been a week since I've had this thing. But uh, it's still it, it's frustrating, um, you know, to go to something different. So I, I, I'm not loving the actual feel of the keys, but more more to come with that, I'm sure. Uh, now, how how is the iPad a primary work device or a primary device at all for somebody? Um, you know, to me, I'm using mobile systems, mobile operating systems much more than I am a desktop system. I mean, it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 80% of my work is done on mobile devices. And so, um, you know, obviously this device replaced an iPad Air 2. That iPad itself um, was something that if I'm not charging it during the day, it's dead by 5 p.m. I'm plugging it in every day at some point. Um, You know, sometimes I leave the house and the thing is already down to 70%. So it is something that, you know, across meetings across multiple locations around town, etc. This is what I'm using and carrying around with me. Now, the other thing is that, of course, I use both native apps, i.e. the mail, the calendar, the, you know, FaceTime to make phone calls on it. But I'm also connecting up uh, remotely to systems, whether it's through a remote login to my desktop computer or something that uh, I'm starting to use a lot more these days, which is a, a VDI, virtual desktop interface. And, you know, VDI, if, if you haven't gotten into it yet, if you don't work for an organization that it has adopted this yet, um, you probably will in the near future in all likelihood. Um, it's going to be the future of how uh, computing is done on a large scale where you're able to roll out these instances or environments to the users of the uh, on the desktop side and keep all of that data on a server elsewhere and not have it, I'll just say, travel around with that user on a hard drive on a physical machine. And so effectively, 
it's a, a an, an experience that is in my opinion superior because it's it's always on um, you can do things on it like uh, you know accessing it from a variety of uh, different uh, operating systems I use it on Windows iOS uh, Mac OS Chrome uh, everything so I mean it's really nice to be able to get in and have the same environment whether I'm logging on from you know an iPad a Mac a Windows machine I mean I've got all of these and so that's why I love that also because it's always on you can do things like scheduling emails or tasks in that environment to to occur uh, when you're not logged on. Um, also, because it's always on and running, you don't need to constantly reboot the thing, wait for a network connection, wait for applications to update. And I mean, you th- you sometimes forget about how long that stuff takes, but think about when you open a laptop and you're waiting for the Wi-Fi to connect and then you're waiting for mail to update and you're waiting for Dropbox to update and you're waiting for Google Photos to update. And, you're, and you, like all these things are happening and it's just, it's all done and happening in the background. And so it's really convenient to literally just like flip open the iPad uh, literally click one button uh, to launch the environment and you're in it within five seconds. And that that's a pretty good feeling to have. Yeah, it's kind of the modern interpretation of a, a of kind of the old mainframe, you know, thin clients uh, terminals that uh, you know every employer you used to have back kind of in the, the the late '80s, right? I mean, before you had personal computers on everybody's desks running their own operating system, you had a dumb terminal, and you just had a serial connection back to some other server in some other room, and there was no data that would be leaving this box. You know, these days, of course, you're internet connected, but uh, kind of on the whole, you don't have data with you. You you don't have have the the physical hard drive running that so you know what companies can do is provide like what you're talking about where you've got an ipad you've got you know another windows machine you've got macs you've got uh whatever you feel like chrome uh that can connect to your your you know computing environment for your company and it's thus a thin client and and or it's a you know bring your own device style thing where then uh the user's then fully in control of their computer and all they need is that you know little tiny little piece of uh, uh, remote desktop software to connect back to the particular server. And, you know, for me, it's a, if you kind of have figuring out how, where I'm going to go with this, um, because the iPad is my primary computer and because I use this environment, yes, I have a, what effectively looks like a windows computer up on my iPad screen for five, six hours a day, probably. Uh, so this is where a big part of the wire, where the, the screen size comes into play and why I'm now testing out using this iPad pro because the, I'm looking, I was looking for more screen real estate because there was definitely a fatigue level that came in after an hour or two hours of effectively working on the screen of an iPad, looking at a full windows desktop on that size of a screen. And I basically do the same thing. I connect to a, a, a virtual machine that happens to be a, a Windows virtual machine that's running on a Mac under Parallels uh, for basically all of my Windows management and uh, Windows usage and Outlook usage uh, on my iPad uh, Air 2 as well. And uh, having that LTE connection built in makes this, uh, you know, infinitely more user-friendly and quicker to access things and quicker to get on. And, and without that feature, it, it, it's just not the same experience, like not even close. And there are you know a couple of pieces to that. Obviously, when you're out and about, um, it's really nice because you just, when the way that Joey does it, you know, you go in, you log in to a VPN and then you're open remote desktop client and then you're right there in the environment. Um, with a true VDI solution, you've got a separate client that functions uh, without the need for VPN, it authenticates through that application itself, although there is also the ability to VPN in and then use the, once you're then in the network, then you can use the remote desktop client. So there are a couple of ways to to skin that cat. But 
Um, either way, so th- this is this is where this this new um, you know where this this bigger screen kind of comes into play. Um, just a couple of limitations, uh, just as we're down this rabbit hole already. Obviously, I've got no mouse uh, to use here with this particular environment, though I did find one. It's very expensive, but I'm I'm trying to figure out if I should test that thing out or not to uh, to interface literally with the iPad. It's supported by the VDI client. Um, also, the keyboard has to be top notch, or you definitely feel limited. I've I've played with a number of keyboards over the past you know, a couple of years and I found one that I liked a lot, which is another part of my struggle and my pain with switching to a new keyboard. Um, you know, a tablet really is needed here if you're going to be using a mobile, uh, using this mobily. Um, on a smartphone, using VDI is definitely inefficient. You can do it, but it's not a great experience. Um, and further, you don't get that fine control because you don't have a mouse and you're using a touch screen. But I've come up with a lot of great ways to do things like inserting pictures into emails and being able to, you know, save attachments and attach files and other things like that. And I, I've, I've become very proficient with it, um, you know, whether it's dragging and dropping or right clicking or saving to a desktop and then re-adding and stuff like that. Maybe it takes a couple extra seconds, but on the whole, it definitely is still much more efficient. And I, I get a lot more time working or I spend a lot more time working and less time futzing uh, with the environment that you're not having to constantly be kind of, I'll just say, wasting time getting up and running. So I, I do think that on the on the whole, it's a it's a better experience and a more efficient experience for me. So since this is an iPad Pro, are you going to pick up an Apple Pencil stylus? Yeah, so that's a great question, and I, you know I have thought about it um, in the realm of because it's there, and as soon as of course I registered the computer or the the iPad, I got an email from Apple saying, "Welcome, here's how you do a bunch of this stuff." And oh, by the way, we sell this pencil, and you should you know maybe come and buy one of these. Um, the answer is I, I don't think so. I, I don't have a real need for this. I'd rather spend that amount of money on a mouse that could be used with this. Um, and like I said, there is one. It's expensive, but um, I'd rather spend the money on that because I think that would be more functional for me. I, I'm not a, I'm not somebody who's doing drawing, and I'm not going to try and figure out carrying this thing around and stuff like that. It's it's yet another thing, um, which is is not what I need. So uh, that is the uh, experience here, the quick uh, 18-minute version of the iPad Pro. And uh, certainly there will be, uh, I'm sure, conversation about it in the future, depending on how it goes and if it decides to stay with me here for the long term. But let's move on. Let's get into the news. First up this week, Ajit Pai, chairman of the FCC, outlined his plan to remove the Title II classification from broadband services and kill off net neutrality laws put into place by the commission two years ago. Pai suggested that the previous commission made an incredible mistake by reclassifying broadband under Title II by installing uh, Brightline rules that could not be broken. Pai claims these changes reduced investment in infrastructure by billions of dollars, prevented the formation of more than 100,000 jobs, and reduced choice for Americans. Pai will publish uh, in Notice of Proposed Rulemaking on April 27th uh, with the full context of his plan, allowing the public a chance to view it before it gets adopted by the commission. Among his goals are to reclassify broadband as a Title I information service and return the FCC's regulatory behavior to the light-touch environment, he says, the Internet enjoyed between 1996 and 2015. Pai suggested that this path will remove internet. Uh, this path will improve Internet speeds, create jobs, foster innovation, and protect consumers' privacy. 
He says, we need rules that focus on growth and infrastructure investment, rules that expand high-speed internet access everywhere and give Americans more online choice, faster speeds, and more innovation. And we are going to deliver. Some investment uh, in industry groups, that is, uh, and companies were quick to commend Pi for the new direction he's taking by the FCC. Uh, and a number of the other businesses vowed to fight Pi's agenda as fiercely as possible. So take everything he said and exactly reverse it, because that is not what's going to happen. Uh, the internet between 96 and 2015, uh, you know, that's a, it's a different story early on. And all we've gone to is, uh, you know, we're, we're, we've got to the point here where uh, internet routing and the, the capabilities of packet inspection have gotten to the point powerful enough now where it can be, uh, you know, it, it can be looked at by the particular application and service you're using. It was not possible uh, way back. So basically having everything being net neutral is why we have the internet that we do today. Netflix wouldn't exist. VPNs wouldn't exist. Any of these things would not uh, exist without the net neutrality rules that we have had uh, because of the openness of the internet and the, the, and the, the kind of the free environment that it created. But now that we only have a handful of, of huge corporations that, that control the access to the internet now as basically a whole, uh, which of course mostly are media companies, it's a, it's a completely different story now. And of course, all they're looking for is their, their self-interest in providing that internet uh, connection now. It's a pro-business approach for sure. And, you know, there should be no surprise with the Republican controlled, um, you know, commission now. That's exactly where you expect this to go, which is the same reason that you're, you know, hearing certain businesses, you know, companies that are excited about this because it's going to be to their advantage. Um, and, and certainly there are going to be others and businesses that are trying to provide that content that are in conflict with the agendas of some of these bigger media companies that are, are not going to be excited about this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, this is it's not a step forward for uh, the consumer generally. Um, it is definitely going to be, you know, something that is, is going to take a little bit of time before we, you know, see everything play out. But ultimately, it's it, it wasn't it's not it's not a great thing to hear. No, and you know, deregulation in this this sector, it it, it you know, it, it kind of works good short term, but then long term, it does kind of create uh, uh, side effects that sometimes are unintended as well, or or unpredicted. You know, things like even today, you know, broadband access for people in rural areas is unbelievably pathetic. It's just it's nearly non-existent, and if it does exist, it's very expensive or very you know high latency with satellite-based things. And you know, if you look way back, you know, when the the telephone industry was really regulated you know there was that rural uh, rural phone uh, regulation where they had to provide phone service to people out in the middle of nowhere and it was a, it, it did come at a great cost to the phone companies but what it did was basically leveled the playing field as far as people where they lived were able to access the phone network and and it, it, it's just one of these things is sometimes you, you have to kind of put rules into place to keep uh, companies in check and to keep things a, a little more fair for for everybody. So anything that we should be taking away from this, Joey, that um, as users of mobile devices, uh, you know, obviously computers and, and the like um, that are, you know, in the short term going to change? Should, uh, are you planning to do anything differently based on this news? I mean, not that there's anything, you know, much that we can do, but uh, certainly there are, you know, it's, it's definitely stuff to be aware of. 
It is. And, and you know, it, 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 you may get to the point where we have, you know, secondary internet start appearing where all of a sudden it's not just one, you, you know, you're not connecting to the internet. You're then connecting to, uh, you know, America Online Network instead because uh, it, because then you've got to, you can, you have to connect this other net, network to, to access Netflix and to access some other things because it, it, it gets to the point where you can no longer afford to provide Netflix on this major internet because there's only a couple of big companies that provide service to the internet. So, you know, things like that could start happening, uh, you know, especially in, in many, many years from now. Well, let's cross our fingers. That does not sound like a uh, an Internet that I would like to use. But uh, certainly there are always things that could happen. So we'll uh, keep an eye on it, as we always do. The EU's plan to abolish mobile roaming charges passed its final vote this week. So citizens of the EU will not pay extra for texts, calls or Internet use in other EU countries starting June 15th. So the vote of the council uh, cleared the path for free roaming, said Dr. Emmanuel Malia, a Maltese minister for competitiveness and digital. He said in a press statement, when Europeans go on holiday this summer, they can enjoy the freedom of being able to stay in touch and use the Internet as if they were at home. The law will affect all citizens living in the EU countries, as well as those in some non-EU nations like Iceland, Liechtenstein and Norway. Previously, the EU had capped roaming charges, the so-called Euro tariff, before agreeing to abolish them back in 2015. The law will also become useful for tourists traveling around Europe who will be able to purchase a single pay-as-you-go SIM for their holiday and use it in any country they like at no extra cost. AT&T this week effectively ruined the branding of the up until now relatively untarnished definition of 5G. The carrier announced plans this week to launch a 5G evolution network. Uh, This is in over 20 cities by the end of the year. According to the press release, consumers with a Galaxy S8 or S8 Plus will be able to take advantage of the 5G evolution connection at twice the speeds of AT&T's 4G LTE network. Specifically, Galaxy owners in Austin are the first to get access to the network, which is really just an effort to modernize and improve its network ahead of the official adoption of the 5G spec by the international standards bodies. So AT&T plans to take advantage of the technologies such as small cells, network densification, carrier aggregation, 4x4 MIMO, and 256 QAM to provide real-world speed and latency improvements, all of which are squarely 4G network components. The company didn't provide any guidance on what sort of speeds S8 or S8 Plus owners in Austin will experience, other than to indicate 5G evolution will be up to twice as fast. AT&T will go live with the updates in Indianapolis this summer uh, with markets including Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, L.A., Nashville, and San Francisco by the end of the year. Further, AT&T said it will have numerous other 5G evolution-capable devices available by the end of the year. All four major carriers are moving forward with the technology trials for 5G despite the fact that a final standard has not yet been ratified. So let's talk about why AT&T's announcement is so bad. Well, first of all, 5G technology doesn't even exist yet. Standards organizations like the ITU, which is the International Telecommunications Union, and the 3GPP haven't even yet released the standards for 5G yet. Further, 5G evolution has nothing to do with 5G. It's just these updates to LTE, and that's it. So 5G technology is expected to use millimeter wave technologies for band transmission, completely different technologies from its current LTE networks, different frequencies, and different types of antennas. To their credit, AT&T only refers to the new service as 5G Evolution, describing it as part of the foundation for the evolution to 5G while the 5G standards are being finalized. But 
ultimately, it's branding for network technology and it's technology that its competitors have been using for much months. Uh, and branding will confuse consumers into believing that AT&T is ahead of all of its competitors by using this 5G nomenclature. is something definitely they are not ahead of. Finally, expect this announcement to spur all the other carriers with their 5G marketing, further confusing all of us and further confusing your friends and family who are, give or take, 5, 4, 3, 2. Hey, what's 5G all about? I heard it on this commercial. Right. You, there's no way to really explain it. It's just a marketing term that they're coming up with that that, that, that they're kind of uh, you know playing off the, the the fact that there is this five, fifth generation you know mobile communication technology standard. Uh, we saw the same thing with the LTE when they started calling that 4G, and then and, and even 3G uh, they were calling 4G, um, which of course now is kind of the standard term for it. And at that time, it was supposed to be what was it uh, a gigabit speed for 4G? Right. And somehow it became, you know, oh, two, two, two megabits is 4G. And, and that's not the case. And, uh, you know, it got eroded to the point where they're like, oh, OK, we give up. We'll just, you know, we'll call uh, 4G. We just name whatever we want 4G. And and uh, unfortunately, I think these uh, the standards boards may just need to come in and create different names for their products and uh, copyright them and go after any company that uses them in the name saying this is a copyrighted term. You cannot be using this. It's one of those um, conversations that, to your point, um, it was HSPA, and I think it was T-Mobile who had originally started this branding, and um, I don't think it was quite as low as 2 megabits, but it was like 40 megabits, right, or 20 or whatever it was that they were, I think it was 42 megabits at the time, and they were saying that this was this was 4G, and it really was this HSPA network, um, and while LTE and that technology has uh, the, the kind of the, the the backing of it in to support what is ultimately the definition of 4G, i.e. gigabit speeds. Um, we are still waiting to see these gigabit speeds. I mean, at best, it's 200 or 300 megabits per second. You know, we need three times that to get up to where, you know, I'll say that the, the maximum is for what, uh, you know, the 4G standard is. I don't see us there um, with current LTE networks. I think it's going to take next generation of networks to get us to gigabit type of speeds. But if I recall, uh, some of the, the the numbers that they're throwing out there is like, you know, 100 gigabits per second is what 5G will go up to. So we've got a lot of room within this next standard. And so I, I think there's there's a long way to go with this. I wasn't expecting to be really talking much about this from a network uh, deployment standpoint until probably 2020. Uh, but uh, AT&T has, has started using it. And uh, certainly they're trying to just get a shot in the arm from a marketing perspective. And that is just it. So don't get confused by it. It is not 5G, not even close. Right. I mean, basically, you have to just kind of, you know, say that, the, you know, they're, they're, the, 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 these carriers should just start branding their networks as, you know, this is our sixth generation network. This is our fifth generation network based on whatever happened to be, uh, you know, technologies that they're using uh, behind the scenes, which, you know, really to the to the customer, they don't care. They just want something fast. That That's all that really matters. Yeah. And ultimately, I just I get, you know, ever more frustrated by how these uh, these things come out and um, I guess I just have to move on because it is what it is and I'm not going to be the ones that are approving the marketing campaigns of the carriers so there you go AT&T this week notifying customers with grandfathered unlimited data plans for the iPad that 
their high-speed data might be capped starting May 24th. So going forward, customers with an unlimited tablet data plan may see their data usage throttled when more than 22 gigabytes of data during a single billing period is used. According to AT&T, data may be slowed down during times of network congestion. Prior to the change, iPad owners with a grandfathered unlimited plan had not been subject to these restrictions. The change brings the plan in line with AT&T's unlimited smartphone plans, which uh, have no uh, the uh, those plans have been limited to the 22 gigs since they were announced earlier this year. The plans uh, for those that still have them require no contract and only cost thirty dollars a month. And uh, one of the benefits was customers were able to transfer them between uh, iPads. So when you bought a new iPad, you're able to bring it along with you and you can even sell it uh, to somebody. So that uh, plan is much less valuable now that it's got that restriction in place. Still unlimited, just not unlimited at high speed if you get over 22 gigabytes in a time and an area where their network is congested. Verizon on Tuesday adding an unlimited data option to its prepaid plans. According to their website, the $80 plan includes unlimited high-speed service through no contract. Video is capped at 480p. Prepaid customers will see speed slowed, slowed when the network is congested, though. Verizon did not say how fast its unlimited prepaid LTE services, but did inclu- does include unlimited talk and text here in the U.S., as well as unlimited messaging from the U.S. to 200 countries and unlimited talk to Canada and Mexico. Now, for those who don't need unlimited service, Verizon's uh, other prepaid buckets include 2 gigs for $40 a month, 5 gigs for 50 and 10 gigs for 70 The plans all include carryover data, but will throttle customers who exceed their monthly data bucket. The $80 unlimited prepaid plan is available today. Sprint on Tuesday lowered the price of its unlimited freedom service. So moving forward, a fifth line added to an unlimited freedom plan will be free. Sprint charges $50 a month for a single line of unlimited data, talk and text. Two lines is 80, four lines is 120, and now five lines is 120 as well. Sprint's unlimited freedom plans do have some strings, including monthly prices only available through June 30th, 2018. After that time, subscribers will see monthly prices increase to $60 for a single line, $100 for two lines, and $130 for lines three to five. Further, the prices all reflect a $5 discount per line when a subscriber enrolls in AutoPay. Sprint's unlimited freedom plan allows for full HD streaming, uh, 1.5 megabit per second music streaming, gaming up to 8 megs, and customers will, of course, see speeds lowered when the network is congested. T-Mobile this week reporting that it has added 1.1 million customers in the first quarter of 2017. That completes a run that has had the carrier adding a million or more customers every quarter for the past four years. Of that 1.1 million, 914,000 were postpaid, 798,000 of which were for phones, 386,000 on the prepaid side. Also of note, postpaid churn fell year over year, going from 1.33% in Q1 2016 to 1.18% in Q1 2017. At the end of Q1, T-Mobile had 72.6 million customers. On the network side, T-Mobile now covers 314 million people with its LTE network. That's the same number that it reported in Q4 of last year. Their goal is 321 million by the end of 2017. To get there, T-Mobile will be both adding new spectrum and reforming existing spectrum. Also of note, extended range LTE, aka their 700 megahertz coverage, is now available in more than 530 markets covering 269 million people. 
That number was $252 million uh, just last quarter, but the recent arrival of the extended range LTE in Chicago boosted that number up to the $269 million they have today. T-Mobile says it has substantially completed its rollout of the 700 megahertz A-block spectrum. T-Mobile also recapped the results of the 600 megahertz spectrum auction for which it spent $8 billion for an average of 31 megahertz of the 600 megahertz spectrum that covers all of the U.S. T-Mobile expects to have at least 10 megahertz covering more than 1 million square miles uh, to be cleared by the end of 2017, and it will begin deploying that spectrum uh, later this year. Another announcements, they announced that the wideband LTE coverage is now available to 235 million people. VoiceOver LTE makes up 70% of its voice calls, and carrier aggregation is live in 754 cities. 4x4 Mimo is available to more than 400, excuse me, 340 cities. Finally, T-Mobile pulled in $9.6 billion in revenue for the quarter. That's up from $8.7 billion year over year. Net income also grew, going from $479 million to $698 million in Q1 of 2017, meaning even though they're spending a lot of money to buy and basically retain customers, they're still making almost a billion dollars a quarter. So definitely doing something right with all of these uh, different strategies they have. Uh, T-Mobile also said that they will have its first 600 megahertz capable Samsung device out by the holidays of this year with other OEMs making plans for their own 600 megahertz product. Uh, So the current thinking is that uh, this new Samsung device could be the Note 8 Uh, We don't know that, of course, for sure, but uh, thinking that the timing lines up for that. Also, finally, uh, the uncarrier, uh, the next uncarrier announcement will be coming by the end of June. So I'm not sure what else they're going to add in here. But for a customer, it's obviously exciting to hear about all this good news and to hear that they're continuing forward. And uh, foremost, the fact that they are profitable, which means they are still going in the right direction with all these things they're doing. Right. And, you know, maybe it's not sustainable long term, but it seems like at this point they've got the critical mass of customers and, you know, people that are talking about T-Mobile and awareness of T-Mobile. And uh, so they've probably built up enough foundation now where it's, uh, you know, now they're now they're not the the distance, uh, distant fourth competitor anymore. I mean, they are right up there and in, in moving in a fast trajectory, you know, towards uh, towards the, the, the number two and number one carrier. You know, you mentioned it not being sustainable, uh, you know, bringing in almost $9 billion, um, you know, in the quarter, uh, spending eight of it uh, on both the network and, of course, the operations of the network, um, you know, still bringing in, you know, a billion dollars is uh, is not a bad thing. So um, it, it's a it, it's it's going well uh, to say it uh, lightly. So um, they are very, uh, very interesting to hear that they continue going in that direction. We'll probably hear more from uh, the other carriers here as we move through the first quarter results season. In device news, ZTE this week announced the Max XL. This is a six-inch full HD Android smartphone from Boost Mobile. Uh, the Max XL has a massive 4,000 milliamp hour battery, screen protected by Gorilla Glass. It has uh, the HPUE support built in for better LTE speeds at the network's edge. HPUE is a technology Boost Mobile parent company Sprint began deploying this year. Uh, the Max XL's main camera 13 megapixels, front camera 5 megapixel, Android 7.1.1 Nougat with a rear-mounted fingerprint reader. Other specs include an octa-core 1.4 gigahertz Qualcomm Snapdragon processor, 2 gigs of RAM, 16 gigs of storage, support for memory cards, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, GPS, and an FM radio. It's available uh, from Boost Mobile for only $130. Blue this week announcing the R1 Plus, an update to the R1 HD, 
with a large curved edge 5.5 inch 720p HD screen with Gorilla Glass 3. It's got a 1.3 gigahertz quad core MediaTek 6737 processor with a Mali T720 GPU, 3 gigs of RAM, 32 gigs of storage, 13 megapixel main, 5 megapixel front camera, flashes for low light shooting, selfie camera has an 84 degree wide field of view, 4000 milliamp hour battery give you, giving you more than a full day of use, dual SIMs included uh, with unlocked support for GSM and LTE networks of AT&T, Cricket, T-Mobile, Metro PCS, and others. Support for voiceover LTE and HD voice when used on T-Mobile. Other specs include Bluetooth 4, GPS, Wi-Fi, and an FM radio. It will run Android 6 Marshmallow. Blue says an update to Android 7 Nougat is in the works. It will be on sale via Amazon and Best Buy uh, for $160. TCL announcing this week that the unlocked BlackBerry Key 1 goes on sale May 31st with a Sprint version coming later this summer. The handset includes a 4.5-inch touch display, full QWERTY keyboard, Snapdragon 625 processor, 12-megapixel camera, LTE, and Android 7.1 Nougat with BlackBerry Hub and BlackBerry Messenger. Plans to sell the device unlocked for GSM and CDMA variants of the phone directly to consumers will happen online for $550. Sprint will sell a phone with its service plans later this summer. More details on those plans coming in the end of May. On the software side, Samsung on Monday said it will push two software updates to its Galaxy S8 smartphone to resolve updates with screen tint and Wi-Fi connectivity. Some S8 owners claim their devices have a reddish tint on the screen. Others say they cannot connect to Wi-Fi networks. Samsung insists there is no actual defect with the device itself, and the updates are being distributed for consumer comfort. The first patch will address the tint issue, giving consumers a further enhanced ability to adjust the color setting to their preference. A second patch targets phones sold by a specific carrier in South Korea and will only be issued there. Uh, The Galaxy S8 and S8 Plus went on sale on April 21st in South Korea a few days before that. Pre-orders of the device have been strong, particularly in the home market of Korea. company did not share first weekend sales figures at this time. Google on Monday said travelers will have access to a wider range of reviews with new translation features. So Google will automatically translate reviews of restaurants, theaters, and other locations to the language on your device. Translated reviews will be followed by the original as well if you want to double check it. The feature is available to Google Search and Google Maps users. Also from Google, they this week made it easier to locate a consumer's vehicle uh, after parking it. So Maps for Android and iOS is being updated with the dedicated Save Your Parking tool, which lets people not only pinpoint the location of their car on a map, but adds details such as the floor level, section, or parking spot for large parking structures. Further, maps can set timers for coinciding with parking meters when they will uh, complete uh, will be up, as well as completing custom alerts before a meter runs out. Lastly, people will be able to share their parking location with others in instances that require people to meet at parked cars. On iOS devices connected to cars via Bluetooth, maps will automatically record the parking spot where the device uh, connects from the owner's vehicle and then walks away from the vehicle. Google Maps has offered parking spot help for some time, but the new features will allow people to have more control and add additional details that Maps didn't previously offer. Google Maps for Android and iOS is free to download from the Google Play Store and iTunes App Stores, respectively. 
So speaking of parking notifications, every once in a while I see that on my iPhone uh, that, you, you know, here's your, the, your parked car location has been marked in maps uh, notification. But I only see that uh, once every like month. And I, I don't know why it appears sometimes and why it doesn't appear other times. And, uh, you know, obviously the car, it, you know, it knows you've uh, you're talking to a car because you've got, you know, you're driving. It's connected to the Bluetooth and then the Bluetooth disconnects and, and that's how it knows it. But uh, I, I'm not sure why it's so sporadic you know I, i'm i'm with you uh i've noticed it is being very sporadic I, i've also not i'm not sure if are you talking about maps you're talking about google maps uh maps apple maps on the iphone so right so i and i'm i'm thinking about this in two ways because i i have noticed that as well on the on the google Maps side uh, i've noticed that it does save your park spot when you're using google maps for navigation when you decide when you don't have it open um, and maybe this I don't, maybe this has to do with the fact that I don't have background sync available, but um, either way, it only works at that time. So I, I think what they're what they're talking about here is kind of expanding this out so that it it maybe Google is running in the back maps is running in the background to grab this location when you're disconnecting from Bluetooth. But certainly that would take some interesting permissions, especially on the iOS side. Right. And, and how we read it is that you have to manually go mark your spot. So you, you, you have to just go manually do all this is what I saw this update as. Yeah. Uh, well, so you, if you want to do very specific details about it, but, um, you know, this when you use Google Maps to navigate to a spot and get out of the car, um, it will mark it on that map. Um, and so every time you then pull it up until it reconnects to that car, it will then prompt you to say, do you want to go to your car or something like that? I can't remember exactly what it is, but. Um, I, I think what this is saying is that it's going to be more, you know, a better integrated tool uh, within Google Maps. I, I have not driven my car since uh, this update came out, so I've not been able to to figure it out, um, or at least I haven't driven it and, and then ultimately gone in and, and done something with Maps because that's the other part of it. Is I think it, I think it's very specific to actually using Maps, so um, which I do from time to time, and especially if I'm going to a place where I might want to know where my car is because then. Generally, it's probably a place that I've not been to before, so it all kind of works hand in hand. But very interesting stuff here. I like the feature. Um, I actually would have used this function about uh, connecting, uh, t you know, to somebody else and sending them where the car is. Um, I I ended up taking uh, a flight just uh, a couple of months ago at this point, um, and I parked the car at the airport, and my wife was on a trip, and she actually was the one picking up the car from the airport on the way back from a trip that she had taken, and so I had to do this whole thing where. I did a, a screenshot of, uh, you know, where actually, no, I did. I took a picture of where the car was and then, you know, in the garage. Uh, and then like, this is the elevator that you come out of and all of that. And in potentially this could have been a very useful feature, but it's not as easy as you would think to tell somebody where the car is. Cause you go, Oh yeah, it's, it's in parking spot, you know, one, two, three, but you know, one, two, three is like four places in a lot of, you know, airports cause there's a lot of parking garages. So um, but either way, very, very neat that this is a, a function now built in. Questions and comments this week. We've just got one, and it's a comment, and it comes from Mike. And Mike says, I just listened to your episode where you mentioned the SyncUp drive from T-Mobile. There are a few items that I would love to share uh, about this device and also on my usage details of the device. So let me start off with a confession. I'm a cell phone junkie. I constantly purchase new devices. Now I have an old iPhone 6S. I end up leaving it in my car, connect it to Bluetooth, and use it as a media server. It has Slacker, Pandora, Streaming XM, Napster, and any other media I want to listen to. It's loaded with music, so I don't have to worry about all my memory being used on my main device. Plus, now it doesn't stop uh, when I get a phone call. 
so it's uh, that's not easy to do without Wi-Fi in the car. So obviously that's something that the SyncUp Drive offers is the Wi-Fi. So um, he also said, number two, I recently took my car to a dealership. I saw that they took my car out, and at the end of a 20-mile trip, I had nine hard accelerations, one harsh brake, and speeds in excess of 80 miles an hour in 55-mile-an-hour areas. RPMs were also over 5,500 on the device. So I called the the dealership and quickly put an end to that. I realized how much I hate others driving my car. Now I know if they abuse it. Also, number three, trips have been awesome with each of my girls using their iPads during the drive. When I normally drive four-hour trips, uh, const- uh, they usually contain about three stops. Now I can go the entire way on a trip without any issues. So it saves me time, money, and, of course, sanity. Just a few thoughts that have pushed me into keeping the item. Uh, it became way more useful than I anticipated. Take care. Thank you for feeding my unhealthy obsession of technology, Mike. Well, a couple of things here. So, you know, I had um, ultimately done a very similar thing with Mike. I've got an old iPhone that I was keeping in my car and using that with one of the T-Mobile SIM cards that I had and just streaming music off of uh, off of that device to the car so that I wouldn't have to then use the uh, you know the the my phone itself to do that. Um, I did notice though when I had the SIM card installed in it that of course it was constantly connected to a network or trying to find a network and that actually uses a lot more battery than I thought it did. So what I've now done is that SIM card is in the sync up drive. The phone is still in the car, but the phone is on airplane mode, but uh, both Wi-Fi and Bluetooth turned on on the phone. And uh, it will ultimately connect up to the Wi-Fi as soon as the sync up drive boots up when I start the car and the music will then start playing. Now, it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. Uh, But one of the side benefits is I was uh, seeing the battery drain quite a bit when I had the SIM card installed on in the phone. As soon as I took it out um, and just had it out on Wi-Fi, this thing will, it, it basically, it charges. I drive very little. I drive three miles a day round trip. And so I'm in the car for a total of maybe 15 minutes. And uh, just that amount of time, you know, five to seven minute spurts of driving is enough to charge it up to keep it. And I, I looked at it again um, yesterday and I've had it in this kind of setup for the last week. It's still at 99%. So it's going to be, it, it stays charged up enough uh, because of the not having the, the cellular function turned on. So I thought that was a pretty interesting thing. Um, as far as the, you know, when you take your car to a dealership, I was actually wondering about this in in kind of the the concept of leaving this thing plugged in when you take it to the dealership because one of the first things I'm I'm sure they do is they plug in a cable to the OBD port and I I can't imagine that they would leave this thing in. No, and it would just depend on what's being done to the car, I suppose, uh, that they would leave that particular uh, device connected. So that that is kind of a question that that, that first popped into my head, too. It's like, well, I'm surprised that thing was still connected when they were doing this thing because they may have, uh, you know, done some checking. And of course, the only reason I'd think they'd be doing something like th- like those d- uh, the descriptions uh, with the hard brakes and the speeds and uh, were to, you know, bet in some new brake pads. And sometimes you need to do something a little bit more aggressive to do that. Yeah, well, either way, you know, you you take a especially if you've got a car that has got, you know, some sort of, you know, I'll say funness to it or power to it. Um, you know, I, I absolutely think about this too, you know, when I take cars in is like how how are people treating my car? Same thing I guess it would be with a valet, right? Like you would be able to see all of the, you know, what's happening with your car when somebody's taking it out. Um, or even loaning it to a friend. I mean, anything. You can see what's happening with the car and um you know, I'll say keep them honest, uh, if you will. Uh, so kind of a kind of a nice thing to uh, to be able to, to understand about your car when it goes to somebody else. So I do appreciate that. And finally, yeah, obviously nice if you've got a family and you've got people that are trying to use or want to use devices. Um, hopefully you've got a big enough data plan on it. I know I've got uh, all this rollover data on the account and, 
you know, you would be able to, uh, you'd be able to monitor that, I guess, and adjust it accordingly and, or tell people don't, you know, don't watch a lot of video or whatever it is. But, um, either way, kind of, kind of neat stuff there, Mike, appreciate the comment on that. Uh, thanks for writing in. And if you'd like to, uh, ask us something or comment about something that we've talked about, we'd love to hear from you. Questions at the cell phone junkie.com is the email address. Or you can give us a call, 650-999-0524. Leave us a voicemail, and we'll get whatever you have to say on a future show. Joey, thank you very much, as always, for your time. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. For more information about the stories you've just heard, visit us at thecellphonejunkie.com.